Hi again everyone, welcome back to our next edition of the study, the Holy Spirit series. And today we're looking at the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. Now, just for your information in case you didn't know, the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament is the same as the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. The Hebrew word for spirit is ruach, breath or wind, and it gives a real description as to how often the Holy Spirit shows up and the way we understand him. The first time we encounter the Holy Spirit in the Bible is hovering over the chaos of the, the, the creation seeking to bring order. In Genesis 1 verse 2 we read, The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And right away there we see the desire of God and the Holy Spirit to bring order to chaos and he still wants to do that today and yet it's obvious that he behaves differently in the new testament at times than he does in the old and the reason for that of course is because of the gospel because uh, jesus came incarnate the son of god into the world to bleed and die for our sins to rise again and ascend to heaven and now glorified the holy spirit can be poured out and deal with us in a way that the old testament saints had not experienced him but we're going to look today at just some of those um, comparisons and contrasts uh, as to how he ministered in the old and does now in the new. Graham Cook, I feel, summarizes it better than a lot of people when he says the Old Testament was a visitational culture, whereas the New Testament is a habitational one. And simply what that means is in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit came to visit, it would seem. But in the New Testament, the Holy Spirit comes to stay. Um, Selwyn Hughes says that uh, the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament moved upon selected people on specific occasions for special purposes. That's good. He came to selected people for specific occasions um, for special purposes. So let's look at some of these in the Old Testament and see if there's any uh, application of this in the New Covenant for us today. Well, several times in the Samson story, for instance, we read that the Spirit of the Lord came upon him in power. And uh, this is a bit intriguing because we know that Samson certainly wasn't all that as far as his sanctification was concerned. At times we see him jumping in and out of bed with prostitutes. And yet the, the, the Spirit of God came upon him um, on specific occasions for special purposes that God deemed at that moment. And we see this with other judges. Uh, I think of Gideon, particularly in Judges 6.34 we read, But the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon. Some translations render that clothed himself with Gideon, or the Spirit of God put Gideon on like a glove. What a graphic description of what the Holy Spirit wants to do with us. He wants to possess us like a hand and a glove. And so we see in the Old Testament that there is this ministry of the Holy Spirit anointing people for exploits. And yet we also see this in the New. If you read the Acts of the Apostles, you will see that the Spirit filled certain people for certain purposes at specific times. And we, I think of Peter in Acts 4 as he speaks to the Sanhedrin. It says Peter filled with the Holy Spirit said in Acts seven fifty five, we see Stephen just before he was stoned to death as a martyr. He's filled with the Holy Spirit and he sees Jesus at the right hand of the Father standing um, to receive him. He was filled for, for martyrdom. But there is this anointing for exploits. We also see in the Old Testament 
and anointing for leadership. One of the most obvious aspects of this um, was the anointing of kings. And you remember Saul uh, was anointed in 1 Samuel 10 by the prophet to be king, as was David in 1 Samuel 16. But there's also anointing for spiritual leadership in the Old Testament. Uh, I'm, I'm looking specifically at Numbers 11 right now, where you remember the advice that Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, was that he should delegate some of his responsibility, otherwise he was going to burn out and crash, um, judging all the people of Israel. And so he appointed 70 elders. And God, of course, was with that. It was part of his program. And God told him, I'm going to take the spur that is on you, Moses, and I'm going to put it upon those 70. And here we see this happening. It's very insightful in Numbers eleven twenty-five through to 29. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to him, spoke to Moses, and took of the spirit that was upon him and placed the same upon the 70 elders. And it happened when the spirit rested upon them that they prophesied, although they never did so again. So as far as we know, this is the only time they prophesied. But notice this. Two men had remained in the camp. The name of one was Eldad and the name of the other Medad and the spirit rested upon them. Now they were among those listed but who had not gone out to the tabernacle yet they prophesied in the camp. And that simply means they were on Moses' list of the 70 who would, who would be judges and elders but they hadn't showed up when they were meant to at the tabernacle. We don't know the reason why. But that didn't disqualify them from receiving this spirit of prophecy. And then verse 27, we see a young man ran and told Moses and said, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. So Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, one of his choice men answered and said, Moses, my Lord, forbid them. Then Moses said to him, are you zealous for my sake? Oh, that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his hand upon them. It appears that Joshua was jealous for the exclusivity of Moses as a prophet. And yet Moses' heart was, he wished that every one of God's people could all prophesy. There is anointing for, for leadership um, in the Old Testament, but that's in the New as well. And we, we see in Acts chapter 20, verse 28, when Paul was leaving the Ephesian elders, he exhorted them to, to keep watch over themselves and all the flock which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. You see, in the New Testament, it's meant to be the Holy Spirit who appoints leaders, not committees and not democracy, but the Holy Spirit. And yet we see here also that it is God's desire that everybody should prophesy. Just like Moses reflected that, we see that coming to fruition in the new. And in 1 Corinthians 14 and verse 5, Paul says there, I wish you all spoke with tongues, but even more that you prophesied. And this reminds me of what St. Augustine once said, the old is in the new revealed and the new is in the old concealed. Speaking of the Testaments. And what we're seeing here is a manifestation in a more fullest sense um, of what was wished for in the old, but can only be realised now here in the new. And of course, many times the uh, Holy Spirit came upon people in the Old Testament to speak messages. So there's also not only anointing for leadership, but an anointing for prophecy. Even ungodly Balaam received an anointing to prophesy when, when it was God's purpose. 
You remember Saul the king in 1 Samuel 10, 16. He was told that he would prophesy. Then the Spirit of the Lord will come upon you and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. So the Holy Spirit's coming upon Saul and he prophesies for a moment. But this is not something that was going on often within his life. And yet when we come to the New Testament, we see that the gift of prophecy is given. And uh, we see also that Peter was completely changed into another man permanently at Pentecost. You remember a month and a half before he preaches at Pentecost, he's denying Jesus with oaths and curses. But now he's standing up in great boldness in Acts chapter 2 and he's preaching with power because the Holy Spirit has come but he's changed into another man but in a permanent way. Not temporary like Saul but in a permanent way. So there's in the Old Testament an anointing for exploits, for leadership, for prophecy. But I want you to see also an anointing for impartation. The Holy Spirit imparted certain abilities to people in the Old Testament. I'm thinking now in particular of in the book of Exodus, Bezalel. It says he was filled with the Spirit of God with all skill, ability and knowledge in all kinds of crafts. And he was given leadership of the construction of the tabernacle. But we see this anointing for impartation also in the New Testament. In Ephesians 4 verse 7 and 8, Paul says, To each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, he says, when he, Jesus, ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. And there's the connection again with the ascension and glorification of our Lord Jesus as the turning point upon which the Holy Spirit is poured out. But when the Holy Spirit comes, he brings gifts. He imparts abilities with him. So what is the difference then between uh, the Holy Spirit's operation in the Old Testament and that of the New. Well, it's not that these Old Testament functions of the Spirit have ceased, but in fact they have, we could say, increased. They've increased both in those who receive them. The Holy Spirit is now being poured upon all flesh, not just upon selected people, but also the Spirit's operation has increased in the potency, the power with which he has come in these abilities. But also the Holy Spirit in the New Testament and his activity has deepened his work. He's not just now coming upon people to leave them again, but he's coming into people to live in them. And also, um, this is not a temporary work as it was in the Old Testament, but it's perpetual, we might say permanent in nature. He is coming into people for a lasting, unchanging purpose in their lives. And of course, this is epitomized in our Lord Jesus Christ. In John chapter 3, verse 34, it says, He whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for God does not give the Spirit by measure. Wow. Now in Christ, the Holy Spirit has been given to overflowing. There's, there's not a little measure that's measured out to a Samson or a Gideon or a Saul or a David, and then that's exhausted. But the Holy Spirit upon Jesus and in Jesus was given without measure to overflowing. And of course, you read the many times within the, the, the New Testament that, that we're said to be in Christ. So this is a pattern for us. 
I, I want to encourage you to think of this, that the gifts and calling of God are now irrevocable, Romans eleven twenty nine says. God doesn't take them away. So if you like, if we were going to probe, but what's the difference between Old Testament work of the Holy Spirit and the New? I would say the description of the New Testament upgrade can be summarized in one word, and that is the word abiding. It's no longer a visitational culture where the Holy Spirit's concerned like it was in the Old Testament, but it's now a habitational one where the Holy Spirit is coming to abide and we're meant to abide in him. Look with me at uh, John's Gospel, chapter 14. We're very familiar with these verses. We've looked at them before, but they warrant our attention again uh, in many respects, not least this one. Verse 16 Uh, through to 18 Jesus said I will pray the father he will give you another helper of the same kind that he may abide with you forever the word used for abide there is meno to stay to live with to dwell he will abide with you forever so he's not coming in a fleeting manner come one day leave another but he's going to abide with them the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him but you know him for he dwells with you there's menno again he was already dwelling with them and and these are the disciples but of course they're they're in a sense old testament saints under the law and they haven't experienced the fullness of new testament a Pentecost experience, and yet the Holy Spirit's dwelling with them, but he will be in you, Jesus says. He will come to reside in you. You will be his temples, in other words. I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. This word meno is used in John chapter 1 at the baptism of Jesus. If you care to turn there for a moment, it's quite remarkable because we read there that the heavens open, and in verse 32 Um, And 33, it says, John bore witness saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove and he remained, the word meno again, upon him. I did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, Upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Remaining on him, meno, the same word again. Now, I think it's all four Gospels mention this story about the, do- the dove-like form of the Holy Spirit resting upon Jesus and remaining upon him. Now, the Holy Spirit is not a dove. The Holy Spirit is not a bird. The Holy Spirit came down in the form. It looked like a dove shape as the Holy Spirit came upon Jesus. But he came to remain. And that's an, an incredible revelation. The Holy Spirit stared on Jesus. We've seen the first mention of the Holy Spirit in the Bible right at the very beginning of the creation narrative. But where is the first mention of dove in the Bible? And we know the law of first mention is important. We derive a great deal of instruction from the first time something is mentioned in Scripture. Well, the first time we see a dove in Scripture is in the story of Noah and the flood. And just as the ark is about to land on dry ground, you remember just before that, uh, Noah sends out a a raven to see if there's any land. Of course, a raven's an unclean bird, according to the Old Testament, and it it feeds on carrion, dead things. And uh, it disappeared, came to and fro, but eventually it disappeared. But then 
Noah sent out a dove. And the first time he sent out the dove, it went uh, back and forth because it says in, in, in Genesis 8, verse 7 through 9, it found no place for her foot to rest. That's interesting. No place to stay, abide, or dwell. And then the second time that uh, Noah sends the bird out, it returns, it brings an olive leaf with it. And of course, an olive leaf um, is from an olive tree that gives olive oil, which is another symbol of the Holy Spirit. But the third time um, we read Noah sent the dove out, it doesn't come back because it found a place for its foot to rest. But it, it was in the place of a new creation. That's incredible. You do know that, you know, when, when Noah went into the ark, that he was called and anointed of God to start a new creation. The old creation was being destroyed by the flood. And he was told when he landed on Ararat to be fruitful and multiply and to fill the earth just like Adam had. And then we get the genealogy of Noah. It's a, new, a picture of a new creation. In the beginning, the Holy Spirit hovered over the chaos and disorder in creation to bring order. And what we're seeing now is the dove remains on Jesus. It's the first time ever in humankind, in all of creation, where the, the Holy Spirit can rest. Wow. Can I say something? If you are in Christ, in Christ, in the Beloved, what is Second Corinthians 5.17 says? If any man or woman be in Christ, he is a new creation. You are a new creation. And what is epitomized in Jesus is your experience as an heir of God and a joint heir with Jesus Christ. You can have the Spirit of God without measure. You can walk with the Spirit resting and abiding upon you not to leave. Not just for selected people, for specific occasions and special purposes, but for all men and women, young and old, yes, of all races, nationalities, for you, for your children and your children's children, to all that the Lord our God shall call. In Christ we have this abiding spirit. Now how do we, uh, how do we walk in this abiding? And we've seen how we, by faith, receive the fullness of the spirit or whatever terminology you want to put on it. But how do we continue to walk in this abiding? Well, John chapter 15 verse 4 that famous passage tells us, and again the word meno is used, abide in me, remain, dwell in me, and I in you. It's meno. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. So there's that mutual abiding, his word in us, and we abiding in fellowship and communion with him. Ephesians 5 verse 18 tells us how we are to be filled with the Spirit. It says, do not be drunk with wine. Can I just stop there for a moment? Do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation is a command. And it's a command just like be filled with the Spirit. Um, and, and I have to say to you that many Christians under the guise of liberty are getting drunk. Um, they are becoming alcohol dependent. Even if they may not become alcoholics, they are depending on alcohol for their peace, for their control. And it's a false spirit. We are to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And the actual rendering here is be continually being filled with the Holy Spirit. It's in the continuous tense and it's in the passive, which means be, allow yourself to be filled. 
put yourself in a position to get continually filled. And that happens through abiding in fellowship. And when Paul was rendering some similar words to the Colossians, you know in Ephesians he talks about speaking in psalms, hymns and spiritual songs, making melody in your heart to the Lord in the same context as being filled with the Spirit. It affects our mouths. Um, he says there in Colossians 3.16, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms, hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in, in your hearts to the Lord. And so he, he frames the idea of the filling of the Spirit with the concept of let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. It's the word abiding in us. It's the truth of fellowship with Jesus as there is that knowing and agreement of what his will is for our lives as we walk in his word and his word abides in us. So I suppose if we're going to be really practical, we could, we could ask this question, is the Holy Spirit at home in your life? Is the Holy Spirit at home in your mind, in your thought life, in your emotions, your heart life? Is he at home in your spiritual life or are there idols or is there competition or conflict to his lordship? What about in your body? Your body is said to be the temple of the Holy Spirit. Do you not know that, Paul says? What are you doing in your body? What are you doing with your body? The members of your body, are you giving them as instruments of righteousness to God or instruments of unrighteousness to sin? Romans 6. Is the Holy Spirit at home in your body? Or is he grieved? Is he resisted? Is he quenched? Let me ask you another question. How many Christians are have even got an Old Testament experience of the Holy Spirit. Now we're not meant to have that and, and <laughs> there's much, much more. But how many have even experienced anointing for exploits, leadership, prophecy and impartation? And yet there is so much more and we want the more. So we pray now, Lord, and ask you that every person listening to this teaching that they would experience a, a, an increase and a, a deepening and an intensity and uh, a, a, a permanent aspect to what Old Testament saints experience. But there's the much more of the new covenant. The spirit without measure that we see in Jesus. And that we can have as new creatures in Christ. And I pray that we will all enter into the much more of that Holy Spirit new covenant experience. In Jesus name. Amen. Amen. 